I'm going to start with the reading of the Gospel for this coming Sunday. And it's from St. Luke's Gospel. And it carries on the stories we've been having from St. Luke's Gospel um, for the last couple of weeks. Jesus was standing one day by the lake of Gennesaret, with a crowd pressing round him, listening to the word of God. When he caught sight of two boats close to the bank, the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, it was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When they had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and pay out your nets for a catch. Master, said Simon, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I will pay out the nets. When they'd done this, they netted such a huge number of fish that their nets began to tear. So they signalled to their companions in the other boat to come and help them. When these came, they filled the two boats to sinking point. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at the knees of Jesus and said, Leave me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were completely overcome by the catch that they had made. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were Simon's partners. But Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on it is men you will catch. Then bringing their boats back to land, they left everything and followed him. When did you first realise that you were in love with someone? Was it how they looked at you? What they did? How it felt to be near them? We have these sorts of moments of insight or awareness that encourage us to carry on in a relationship and let it grow deeper. I'm sure you've had all those experiences with different people. Well, the same is true of our relationship with God. Each of us has special experiences which make it easier or sometimes more difficult to enter into a relationship with God. For me, there are a couple of experiences I had in my late teens that have shaped my spiritual life. The first was on a Good Friday. The church in Hull was packed, so packed indeed, that we were standing in the porch at the back of church. And it was all very crowded and rather hot and it was quite difficult to understand what was being said up at the church. One part of the service of Good Friday, you remember, is when people come up and venerate the cross. And as we were queuing from the back of the church to go right up to the front of the church 
to venerate the cross. There was a feeling I had that something important was going on in this procession. There was a sense of there being something other than just this procession of people in a crowded church. It was a presence of God in some way that I couldn't quite explain. And I just remember feeling that that was a moment when I had got somewhere beyond myself, somewhere to God. And the second experience was a couple of years later, I was helping with children's camps in a religious community in Germany. And the campsite was on a hill, which then overlooked a valley over towards another hill about six or seven kilometers away. And it was evening time. And the sun was coming down behind that other hill. The sun was glowing red. And a number of us who'd been busy on the campsite during the day were standing together. And one of the brothers of the community that run the campsite started up singing, O light serene of God the Father's glory, which is a kind of Russian tune to it. And it just made an impression, the sense of wonder at nature, at the surroundings, the peace, the activity that we'd done during the day, that somehow it was all being taken together in God, in that light serene. Each of us has these sorts of experience of something beyond themselves. You will have had those experiences yourself. And it's good to recall them from time to time because they support us and help us to see things differently. Our readings this Sunday are about people finding their special relationship to God. And that's where our story from St. Luke comes in. Jesus has been busy wandering around different towns in Galilee and gradually building up a following. And now he's come to the lakeside and the people following him have got too many. There's too big a crowd for any building. So they go down to the lakeshore. And even then, the lakeshore is not sufficient for all the people and himself to find a place where he could speak to them all. So he spots this boat and he thinks, well, if I pull away from the shore a little, I'll be able to speak to all the people who are crowded all along the beach. Now, we know from the gospel that Peter, uh, that Simon Peter was known to Jesus already because in the previous chapter, 
Jesus had healed Simon's mother and had had a meal at his house. And so Jesus uses the boat of this person he's met before to enable him to preach to the people and talk to them. And when they've all decided to go home, he turns to Simon and says, you know, you should get out into the, the lake and there's, there's a lot of fish to catch. Jesus isn't any kind of fisherman, but Simon is. And he says, well, look, we've spent all night trying to fish and got nothing. But, okay, I suppose I'll do it. And he ends up with a wonderful catch. The fresh pair of eyes that Jesus has had and the way he looks towards the lake enables him to see something that Simon hasn't seen at all. And the, they end up with so many fish that the boats are almost sinking as they pull them into shore. So Peter is just flabbergasted. He's overwhelmed by what Jesus has done. And he just turns to him and say, look, you're too good for me. I'm just a simple fisherman. You're far too holy. I know. Just go and find somebody else to do your work. I'm just not up to it. And the thing that Jesus does is not to say anything much. He just reassures Peter. Do not be afraid. From now on, it's men you will catch. And then bringing their boats back to land, they left everything and followed him. It's a huge moment for somebody to give up their job and just follow an itinerant preacher just on the basis that this person does wonderful things. But it's clearly a story that Peter retold. It gave him faith. Luke has a very particular story of the call of the disciples. What we have with the story of Jesus' early mission is that after he's baptised down in the Jordan near Jerusalem and is tempted in the wilderness down there, he returns to Galilee. He goes to Capernaum, where he lived at the time with his mother, and then wanders round the small towns in Galilee area. And as we heard last week, goes into Nazareth and is rejected. So he's turned back to Capernaum, rather probably with a bit of wondering in his mind, um, is this all going wrong? Is this all going not quite to plan? But he goes to Capernaum, performs cures there, and now he starts gathering together 
some people who will help him. He's not going to be a preacher on his own. He's going to be with a team of people who will support him and will go out and tell others about him. And so in this gospel, we have the call of Simon, although not stated, his brother Andrew, James and John. And later in the same chapter, we have Levi. And then by the following chapter, we end up with 12 apostles who are the leaders. So there's, to some extent, there's no grand plan. What we have is a gradual unfolding of events, how Jesus responds to them. He's a lone preacher. He does cures and gradually develops a reputation and followers. And as he gets to know them, the size of the group grows and he gives more responsible roles to different people. He knows he cannot organise things just on his own. So we have an idea of Jesus gradually discovering his mission. There's no great blueprint, but he reacts to different situations and gradually appreciates his mission. Now, that's very much Luke's idea of the incarnation. Jesus is a human being, and most of us end up doing things on a gradual basis, experiencing things and moving on and learning from that. And the same is Luke's picture of the disciples. They meet him. They invite him into their homes. So Simon Peter invited uh, Jesus into his home. And he gradually got to know him and he got to see the cures that he did for, Peter, for Simon Peter's mother. And in this story, Simon is really unsure that he can do the job that Jesus wants. But after a bit of experience, he can take on the role. But it's only a beginning. And it will not be fully realised until the end of Peter's life. So our faith is a gradual process. And what we see with the disciples is that their faith is a gradual process coming to the resurrection and then beyond the resurrection as they go out onto mission. John Henry Newman in his hymn, Lead Kindly Light, says, I do not ask to see the distant scene, one step enough for me. So your faith journey and mine is a gradual process. We are encouraged by our experiences. We're sometimes dismayed by what seems to be asked of us. And yet we trust that the Lord will be our companion on this journey. That he'll never make us do what we cannot possibly do. He'll always be there to put us back in the right path. Simon Peter made loads of mistakes. 
and yet he was the first of the apostles. What we have here is his uncertainty, but also his faith. Then bringing their boats back to land, they left everything and followed him. Thank you, Deacon John, um, for our first part of this evening's catechesis, our Friday evening catechesis, when we look at the gospel for Sunday. I'm going to play our first piece of music and we will be back with Deacon John very soon. So you are listening to Friday evening's Catechesis, Your Word is a Lamp to Our Feet. And in our studio, we have with us Deacon John, who is going through and contemplating this Sunday's Gospel. Back to you, Deacon John. The first reading for this Sunday is taken from the prophet Isaiah and recalls Isaiah's own call. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord seated on a high throne. His train filled the sanctuary. Above him stood seraphs, each one with six wings. And they cried out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the threshold shook with the voice of the one who cried out, and the temple was filled with smoke. And I said, What a wretched state I am in! I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have looked at the King, the Lord of hosts. 
and one of the seraphs flew down to me, holding in his hand a live coal, which he'd taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. With this he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your sin is taken away. Your iniquity is purged. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will be our messenger? I answered, Here I am. Send me. This story takes place about 640 years BC, the year of King Uzziah's death. Isaiah was obviously a priest in Jerusalem. And so naturally, the story begins with a scene in the temple. Isaiah is at prayer. And as is normal in the temple of those days, the smoke of incense and sacrifices fills the temple. So within all this smoke, and as he prays, he gets a vision of heaven. He sees strange things through the smoke. He sees the Lord in some way, sees God, and he's aware of how unworthy he is. I am a man of unclean lips and live like among a people of unclean lips. Just as Peter, later before Jesus, says, go away from me, I am not worthy. His initial idea is, I just can't be with the Holy One because I am not holy myself. And yet, what occurs to him in this prayer is an understanding of faith and of the real situation of religion in his time. He's in a temple where people come regularly to offer sacrifices. So there's a smell of burnt animals. And yet, despite seeing all this sacrifice, all this prayer going on, he says, I live among a people of unclean lips. He's got a sense that people around him are actually not very good. That despite all these particular sacrifices that are going on, actually the true worship of God is not going on. He realises that there's more to religion than prayers in the church. At the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy that he then writes down, he is acutely aware that God wants people's actions to change, not just people to worship. And so he says to them that you, your silver has turned to dross, your wine is waters, your princes are rebels, 
all of them greedy for presents, eager for bribes. They show no justice to the orphan, and the widow's cause never reaches them. Bring me no more futile cereal offerings. The smoke from them fills me with disgust. New moons, sabbaths, assemblies. I cannot endure solemnity combined with guilt. Your new moons and meetings I utterly detest. To me they're a burden I am tired of bearing. He realises that there is more to religion than simply saying prayers, giving sacrifices. It affects the whole of your life. He says, what you have to do is to learn to do good, search for justice, discipline the violent, be just to the orphan, plead for the widow. As he prays, Isaiah realises that he has to be much more than just a priest. He has to be a prophet. His first reaction is, as I said, that I can't possibly do this. I know that this is a problem. I know the people around me are unclean because they say things in prayers. They say things with their sacrifices. But they don't do things that are what God wants. Helping the poor, the weak. They exploit them. They're rich. They make their money out of oppressing the poor. But how can I do this? He's just aware that he, being one of the priests, is part of the system. And what happens is that the angel comes and touches his lips. You are all right. You are someone who can be a prophet. And God deals with it. And so when the Lord then asks, well, who can I send? Isaiah answers, here I am, send me. Like Peter, from that experience of meeting Jesus, he's able to get up and go and change his life because he's no longer just the priest in the temple. He is a prophet who is not going to be popular, who's going to say things that are not going to be popular with people. What we find in this story, as with the call of Peter, is that in our own call, our own personal calling from God, God chooses ordinary people who are weak and works through them, doing what we can in our own setting is enough. Our small acts make a difference, and we needn't be afraid.
Peter and Isaiah could do certain things. That's enough. The Lord will make use of those and somehow multiply the effect. And the second feature of this story is Isaiah's realisation that in organised worship in church is not enough. Worship expresses our love of God, but needs to be shown in how we lead our lives. How do we show care for the weak and the vulnerable? There are many groups in many parishes throughout this country and beyond that do just that. Society of Vincent de Paul, food banks, people spending few hours a week together helping others, being a friendly face, encouraging those who've perhaps lost hope or lost trust in humanity. People who are showing that they see the world as God sees it, in need of love and healing. This coming week, we have the feast day of St. Josephine Bakita on the Tuesday, the 8th of February. And she's the patron chosen to for our prayers for those who are victims of trafficking. She was brought to Italy from Africa to work for a family for many years. And she finally escaped from them and joined an order of nuns. She no longer was having to work for other people in an exploited way, with no freedom. She was able to choose freely, and what she did to choose freely was to serve others. Not in any extraordinary way, but in a kindly way of greeting people, of supporting people, and particularly the poor and the weak. In that prayer for those who are victims of trafficking, we too reach out to the most marginalised in our society, the ones we often don't know about, often people don't care about. They're often illegal migrants or whatever. But we reach out in prayer to them we try to preach out in service to them. And in that way, we begin to show the love of God for each other. The problem that Isaiah faced was that not everyone realised in his society that worship required action for the poor and the weak. And so when we come to the beginning of Lent, we will come back to these 
stories from the beginning and words from the beginning of Isaiah because they are the words which call us to action at the beginning of Lent because they're the ones which tell us that we must repent and move to something different. That the words that we get about sacrifices, I am fed up with them, are those the words that come right at the beginning, in the first week, few days of Lent. So here, what we have is Isaiah's calling, and it's a calling that asks us to look at our lives, to see what we can do as weak human beings with limited abilities, but to realize that we can do things that make a difference to show that God loves those around us. Thank you, Deacon John. Um, so much to think about there. And I hope maybe um, I'm going to give out our number, um, 01223 375 That's 01223 Please do call in if you have any questions that you'd like to ask Deacon John. Or indeed, at the beginning, um, when he was um, so kindly shared your own experiences, Deacon John, a couple of your experiences where you felt an encounter with God um, that you rem remember now, even though it was a long time ago, and how those experiences can sustain us. And sharing that is uh, sustains those of us that listen too. So if you have a an experience you'd like to share yourself, um, you're most welcome to. Um, and just before I start the music, the number is 01223. Three seven five five six four. You're very welcome to call in. To remind you the number is 01223-375-564. So Deacon John, if you could continue. Um, apologies listeners, I think the music stopped there and I didn't spot it, so you may well have had a period of silence. Um, but if you could continue for us, Deacon John. Sure. Actually, I've just remembered I've got a question to ask you, haven't I? Um, when you were talking about Isaiah and you were talking about religion and how um, religious practice isn't enough. I often hear, even people who are Christian even, 
saying that um, I'm not religious. I, I live with a faith and, and it's something alive. It's, it's not religion. It's not religious. And I wondered, uh, is, is considering ourselves as religious, is that still important? It bit depends on what people mean by religious. I mean, I often meet people who will say that they have a sense of spirituality, but they're not religious. That's a different sense. The religion in that sense is a kind of institutional practice that is about an organization. I mean, that's something that very much um, Isaiah was involved in because he was involved in the temple worship. And Jesus is in his time has the people who do or organized religion the the Pharisees and the, and the the Levites and the the teachers of the law in the following parts of uh, that chapter five of Luke's gospel they're coming to Jesus from all over Galilee and from beyond, from Judea. They're the organized religion. They want to, to make sure that Jesus is someone who is doing the orthodox things. As you say, there is a sense that faith gets beyond the organized institutional ways of doing things that in a sense when Isaiah is being called as a prophet he is being called to stand outside the institution and to question how people in the institution behave and to some extent that's Jesus Jesus isn't an orthodox rabbi he isn't somebody who fits the normal mold of being a rabbi. He somehow established himself as a rabbi and he gathers his own following. And it may be that there are people who feel that they have to stand outside the institution in order to help it, but also to be able to reach out to people to whom the institution doesn't necessarily speak. You think about people like Francis of Assisi, who were very much on the margins. He didn't fit, but gathered his own followers and gathered his own support. So I think there is a tension here between the institution and the way people who are outside the institution have something to say. Yeah, thanks. That's really interesting. And I think many of us broach that, don't we? The in, the the institution, the church, but also stepping out of the the walls of the church to those, especially those that can feel excluded. In my in in my experience, um, that's been an important part of my faith. Yeah, uh, uh, and it's important that. The institution reaches outside, but the others feel that they can, to some extent, drop in on the institution when they, they need it. I think the institution has its role of being there as clearly visible and supporting. But 
we recognize that there are people living out their faith in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Well, I won't interrupt you from the rest. You no, have no. a little more to share with us. Thank no. you. No. The other um, aspect of Luke's story of the fit catcher of the fish is that it's not the only time that this story is told in the Gospels. And sometimes you may have the impression that I've heard it before, but I can't quite place where it is. Well, this story about the miraculous catch of fish occurs in John's Gospel, not at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, but at the end. It's in chapter 21, a story after the resurrection. But we have many of the same elements. Jesus has, the disciples have gone fishing. Same people, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Jesus is on the shore. Peter recognizes Jesus, and in John's gospel, jumps into the water to get to the shore. They haul in a huge quantity of fish. In John's gospel, 153, which in those days was the, the sum total of all the creatures that were known in the world, or the fish known in the world. And at the end of the story, Peter gets a calling, this time after his betrayal, to come back and to lead. So there are a lot of common elements in Luke's account and in John's account. Peter declares himself unworthy, Christ is reassuring. But what we have is here a sense that the, what the Gospels are doing is not necessarily putting together a neat historical bi biography with every event carefully catalogued. We get different ways of putting together many of the same stories that are conveying a message. And what we have to ask is, well, why is the gospel writer putting things together that way? What is Jesus being told to us as a kind of person? What kind of person is he? In Luke, we have three key elements in this story of the miraculous fish uh, hall of fish. The first thing that's important about Luke's account is the incarnation. We have in chapters 1 and 2 the stories we all know from Christmas about the way Mary is, gets the message of the angel and then gives birth to a son and then takes him to the temple and loses him in the temple. We have an incarnation story of Jesus as a genuine human being. And so what we get is Jesus is someone who, as I said, gradually works out his mission. He doesn't have 
a knowing, a divine plan. As a human being, he has to learn, work his way into it. And he has to find from the events, like the rejection in Nazareth, he's got to find his way forward. The second is belief. And it looks at the disciples. The disciples take an awful long time to get to understand who he is. It's not really until after the resurrection. And so one of the most important stories in Luke's gospel is the story of the couple on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' resurrection. That's quite a long walk because it's about eight kilometers. So Jesus and these two talk for a long time and they tell him about their hopes that they'd had for Jesus and how they were all being dashed by his death. So Jesus has to explain the scriptures to them. And so they gradually understand who he was and what he was trying to do. And then as they get to their destination, they invite him in for a meal and he breaks bread and disappears from their sight. And they had recognized him in the breaking of bread. So it's that sense that it takes a very long time in order for us to understand who Jesus is and to then follow him. And that takes us to the third part, which is also in that journey to Emmaus, but very much in Luke's whole account, which is a movement of first a mission around the villages of Galilee, and then a movement down for the many days and hours into Judea and onto Jerusalem. And it's on that journey and that Jesus gives his teaching, meets people, meets people who begin to understand who he is or parts of who he is. And then he goes to his fate, his death in Jerusalem, and then his appearances in Jerusalem and going, and the mission of the church going out from Jerusalem. There's a sense that there's a journey that Jesus goes to Jerusalem, to the temple, and away again. And our own faith journey is also a matter of coming to the church, coming to Jesus, and going out again to others, to going out again to be the missionaries, not inside the church, but of outside the church. Our faith is not a sort of one-off conversion that we're suddenly saved and that's great. It's a gradual process of us drawing closer to Jesus and being able to give what we have received 
out to others. So it's a real story that Luke has of this miraculous haul of fish starting with Simon in his ordinary day job and ending with Simon with a totally different job to do, a job which will rarely bring him back to Lake Galilee, but takes him eventually to Rome and to his own death. Thank you, Deacon John. Um, It's always, uh, I don't know, it stops us in our tracks when we remember how our daily lives are our Christian lives, all the moments of our lives we're expressing and living our faith and uh, it's easy to forget it or become distracted isn't it yes absolutely yeah um thank you so much for um our catechesis um this afternoon um in readiness for the mass um on sunday um i wonder deacon john would you give us a prayer and a blessing to end this session please lord we thank you for our calling that you choose us who are weak and in need of your help. We offer ourselves to you. Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and to work for your praise and glory. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.